Well, hello, everyone. It is Bible study time, and I hope you're looking forward to it. And and uh, we were just kind of talking about it. And I know every one of us wants to get back to our normal, but but at least this podcast is such an opportunity. And we're going to see with Paul today that that. He didn't ever want to miss opportunities, and and so we we go with the flow, and and we will do the best we can, and so try to concentrate and work hard at at doing your lesson, and and so and just picture, just picture us together, and so let's let's all come together right now and go before the Lord. Father, we thank you for this opportunity, and we open up your word, and may we hear you speak to us, because you are, you're going to speak to us. Lord, we thank you for these lessons that that really are applicable. They're really good for us right now, what we're going through. May we, may we know it's more than just a story about Paul, but that it is lessons for us, and we will give you praise for what we're going to receive today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now we're in chapter 23 today, and uh, where were we last week? Well, we, we <laughs> it's kind of Paul has really been under the gun with the Jews, and and it's like a, a broken record, isn't it? But back in chapter 21, um, they accused him of um, just of just being absolute, absolutely well. They were absolutely wrong, and they and they tried to tell people that that he was um, not real, that he was trying to take away the Jews, um, their religion, and, and they were just making up this story, and they were causing such, such a commotion. In fact, they stirred the whole crowd up and got everybody, everybody in, involved saying, men of Israel, help us. This man is teaching all men everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And I mean, you know how much Paul loves being a Jew. And and so this false, this very false accusation is still going on. They're still causing him problems because of that. And he is he has seen riots and mobs come together and and now the commander in Rome is trying to um you know kind of help him out here and he has poured out his heart with his testimony and then last week you know we were we were noticing how how it's kind of like all of a sudden it dawned on me what are these what is the problem with these Jews what's getting them so riled you know why are they so angry with Paul and and he, and it was it pretty much told us last week, remember in chapter twenty two when he was pouring out his heart he was he was testifying to what the Lord had done, you know, admitting what he used to do, and now watching the Lord change him and then when he said what the Lord said to him that he would be sent far away to the Gentiles. And it said the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. And remember how we, we recalled how the Jews 
They just, they've got a bug in their bonnet, and that is Gentiles. Oh, they can act like it's so good the Gentiles are coming into the fold, and, and they didn't care if Gentiles became Jews, but they got all riled up when, when Paul would say the true gospel, which is everyone can come to the cross. Everyone comes to the cross the same way. Well, that's what really teed them off. They want to always be one step better than the Gentiles. And so by having to admit that the Gentiles can come into salvation and the gospel the same way they do, well, that just set them crazy. And, and so they, they shouted, rid the earth of this man. He's not fit to live. And, you know, Paul, what can you say? He, you talk about relinquishing to God's will. Letting go and letting God just use him whenever, wherever, through whatever. And, and being in God's will was major to Paul. And what a lesson for us. Do we really long to be in God's will? Do we really trust that God's will is the best? And I know I get on, I get on, a, on a soapbox with that too. I just think that we are afraid to surrender to God's will. And, and really, that's, that's just not smart because his will is what's best. And we will not totally be satisfied or content until we really relinquish and surrender to God's will in our life. And then we, we watch how, how Paul loves to express how we can be free in Christ, freedom in Christ. You know, what does that mean? And we're going to learn more about that, to think that all of our past, we can be freed from the past. We can be freed from addiction and our sins, and, and it, it's such a fresh way to live. I always say, we Christians, we have it made. We can be set free and know that all the past has been washed under the blood and we can continue in this abundant life. Well, we have left Paul before the Sanhedrin because the commander of Rome pretty much doesn't know what to do I mean, he, I think he is just, I think he's just fed up with this whole religion thing. And I'm thinking, what a terrible testimony these Jews are portraying, you know, not only with their, with their actions, but their attitude and, and no doubt their countenance. And it's just, oh, I, I just think we've got to keep remembering that our testimony isn't just words. It's how people perceive us. How do we act? How do we look? And so now um, Paul is before the Sanhedrin because the commander called the Sanhedrin together and, and knew, hey, this isn't my problem. This is your problem. And so Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin, chapter 23, and he said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. What a statement. What a, 
what a relief to be able to say that, knowing that you have done your best. Now, again, I'm going to mention Paul's past. You think, well, how can you say that? You know, how can you say? Because he used to persecute the way the Christians he stood there when Stephen was being stoned and cheered them on. And, and he, I mean, he's the first one to admit that he has a past. And he is so sorry for it. And so how can he make a statement? My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Well, it's because he is under, he knows that his past is under the blood. It's over. And, and what do we know about, we talked about last week about forgiveness and, and how he remembers our sins no more. Beautiful word, forgiveness. And he, it's, like, it's like we have a new life in Christ. Old is gone, and now it's a new life. And he's saying, from when I started my new life, I made the most of every opportunity. And he, he, has, a, he has a good, um, solid conscience. Like, no, I, I wouldn't change a thing. It's not been easy, but I have a good conscience. And then it says, at this time, the high priest, Ananias, ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Just think, right? That had been a shock. All of a sudden, Paul makes this statement like, you know, and he's very calm, and he says, my brothers, I, I know I'm standing before you, but I am conscience-free. My conscience is fine. I haven't done what you're accusing me of. And the, and the high priest then has the, the, the men there. He orders them in standing near Paul to just smack him in the mouth. Well, not only was that a startle, but uncalled for. And Paul then comes back and he says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there and judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. And, and I mean, that took a lot of nerve to say that. But, but why do you think a high priest would, would have hit him in the, why he would have had Paul hit in the mouth to begin with it and tried to come up with reasons. And I mean, maybe, maybe he thought that being that Paul is being accused of what he's being accused of, how could he stand there with a good conscience? Or, or maybe he did think about Paul's past. And when he heard Paul's testimony, how could you have done that? How could you have stood there by Stephen? And, and maybe he thought, how can you? Be? Maybe he didn't understand what forgiveness really is. Or maybe, I thought, maybe he was feeling kind of guilty. Maybe, you know, he, he can portray on the outside how religious and how good he is, but maybe inside he down deep knows he can't say the same thing. 
And guilt will make you do a, a lot of strange things. In fact, it, it wouldn't surprise me a bit if he wants to put Paul down so then he doesn't look so bad. But then Paul comes back with this statement and, and even says to him, you whitewashed, you whitewashed wall. You're, you're, so, you're so clean on the outside, but you, you, you are so like a wall. You can't, we can't even penetrate through you. You can't even begin to hear the message of the gospel. You won't even hear and yet you portray yourself as being so righteous and they weren't. You could only be made righteous through Jesus and they think they are doing it themselves. It's called self-righteous. And, and he's calling them on it. Paul's calling them on it. And then those who were standing near Paul said, you dare to insult God's high priest? I'm sure there are many drop jaws through this these couple minutes here. You know, it's so much is going on, and then Paul replies, "Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people." Now, okay, maybe Paul, maybe. He really doesn't know that he's the high priest. Maybe he's been gone so long. Maybe he didn't know. Maybe he really didn't know. Maybe, maybe um, he, his eyesight is so bad he didn't recognize who he was. Or, and I'm being a little sarcastic here, but I think we have got to know Paul. And maybe... Maybe he's thinking to himself, um, I, if, I, I honestly don't think that anybody, any real high priest would act the way you just act, acted. See, he's probably, you know, maybe if he's in that frame of mind, like, you did not carry yourself the way a high priest carries himself. And so maybe he was being sarcastic when he said, I did not realize that he was the high priest. I mean, maybe in his mind he's thinking, because they would never act like that. I don't know. I don't know. But Paul makes that statement. And then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin. So now Paul calls out to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. That's a good statement, he's saying. My hope is not in anything, not anything of this world. My hope is in the resurrection, the power of the resurrection of the dead, well, that statement, of course, set those two sides just a-blazing. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the, and the assembly was divided. 
Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So by saying that about being a Pharisee and that his hope is in the resurrection, I mean, look, just look at the character of this, relig this religious sect here. Look at the character of the Sanhedrin. Instead of trying to get along, trying to, you know, find out the real reasons with Paul, you know, you can see this whole thing is a mess because they're, they, they're lying, they're plotting, they're arguing, they're divided. Absolutely the opposite of what a heart filled with Jesus is like. I mean, this is what religion looks like without Jesus. You pick fights, you don't agree, you, you um, are self-consumed, you don't see straight because you are just seeing you're so caught up in the flesh, in your emotions. It's really quite a sight, and I think we have to take a look. Look what Jesus does in our hearts. Only he can change our heart. All church attendance and, and all the religion that we might study and learn and, and know. Even scripture is I mean, as profound and as wonderful as scripture is, if you don't have the spirit of God because you've been to the cross of Jesus, you are not going to understand the truth of scripture and you will not see how it can change you. So as smart as this Sanhedrin was, they are acting exactly the way a religious person does without Jesus, without a savior. They're crabby. Their countenance is probably very negative and critical. And again, you're going to see, just like I mentioned, that look at their, look, look what their actions are. So there was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or angel? In fact, um, King James even says that, um, talks about, you know, that same kind of kind of example of when when the Gamaliel said, you know, let's just kind of let it go. If it's of God, it, we can't fight against that. If it's of man, it will fail. I think in the King James, it kind of goes back to that verse. They're trying to say, come on, if it's really of God, there's no point in fighting here. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. 
So they did, even though the Pharisees came out and said, you know, we can't find any fault in him, and if it's of God, we should fight like this. But you know what? They got so self-consumed with the argument with the, with, the, with the Sadducees that it just took precedence over the whole, the whole thing that was going on. And they continued the fight, and they, they became so violent that, that they were so mad, it just escalated that the commander was afraid Paul was going to get torn to bits. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him to the barracks. See, I'm so grateful for this Roman commander here because the Jewish leaders are totally out of control. Now that's Something's wrong here. The pagan Gentile Roman commander is saving the life of Paul because of the Jewish religious leaders. Doesn't that say something to you? That we should be longing for a, a growing relationship with Jesus and through his spirit and his word that we get to know him better. It isn't just religion piled on to religion. and We want it real. We want it to change us. We don't want our testimony to look like this. Following night, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. King James says, Be of good cheer. Apparently, Paul is pretty downcast. It doesn't tell us why, but again, if you put yourself in here, if you put yourself in the story, if you try to imagine the way you would react going through what Paul is going through, all this time, seems these last couple weeks, and yet he's kept his cool, he stayed calm. Other than saying, you know, saying, calling the high priest a whitewashed wall, but, but goodness sakes, he was right. He's trying so hard to get these leaders to comply and to believe and to surrender to the gospel. Could be, you know, why did the Lord have to come near Paul and say, be of good cheer, take courage. Maybe Paul is just, he's just running out of gas, I thought. Maybe he's just kind of, you know, saying, I don't know if I could handle much more of this. I think more than that, even. Even though he might, he's been, with the Holy Spirit, he's been following in the Lord's leading so purely and so right. So what, what happened here? Could it be that he's just so discouraged because he can't get through to these guys? To me, that probably is more likely than Paul giving up because he just never had that attitude of give up. The Lord probably had to come to Paul because he's just, he's so sad that he hasn't been able to get through. And that, you know, that 
does make you feel very sad when, when you feel you're trying, you're trying so hard and they just won't listen. When I, when I personally get discouraged, when I, when I, you know, get, can feel the human nature and just, just like Paul, like, like you. I mean, sometimes it's just one, one headbutt after another, and you just think you're, you're banging your head against the wall, and, and you get discouraged, and maybe you even get discouraged against the Lord, like, come on, I thought you were going to come through with this, or why didn't you do this, and you know, be honest, we get discouraged, and, and that word is a dangerous word. Because if we're not careful, discouragement can go to despair and then defeat. And so the Lord came and said, be of good cheer, Paul. Take courage. And I go to Joshua chapter 1 so many times. When I need some pick-me-up, when I need to hear the Lord because he knows my, my heart and he knows my, my discouragement and why. And, you know, I go to Joshua 1 because, you know, you, you can't help but, but imagine that Joshua, when he had to take over for Moses, when he had to fill Moses' shoes, so to speak, that was a pretty big pair of shoes to fill. And the Lord came to Joshua and said these words, Be strong and very courageous. Now, how, how, how don't you get discouraged? Or how, how do you stay strong and courageous? How do you fight against this discouragement? Well, he, he, he goes on to say, the Lord goes on to say, This is how you do it, Joshua. Or this is how you do it. Well, no, this is how you do it. Put your name in there. Do not let this book, capital B, this book, do not let this book depart from you. Do not let it depart from your mouth. Keep letting the Holy Spirit feed you what you have learned and what you know. Meditate on it. Meditate on it day and night and be careful then to do what is written in it. That's how you keep discouragement from turning into despair and defeat and throwing the towel. I remember when we were talking about this before a little bit and how if you are feeling overcome... Remember when we talked about that and, and we, we mentioned about instead of being overcome with all of the circumstances around us, how we can be overcomers instead of being overwhelmed and overcome with our own self and with our, our own attitude and, and to keep discouragement away. What, what happens when we start getting overwhelmed? When we just feel so overcome with the weight of the world, what has happened? It's really very simple. We've taken our eyes off the Lord. 
and put them on ourselves in the circumstances. And it is a fight because it's naturally what we want to do, but we have got to fight against that and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. I refer to that song so much because I need to continuously turn my way back to him. So the Lord tells Joshua, you be strong and you be courageous, but this is how you do it. You keep your Bible open and you read it and you meditate, you think about it, and then you do what it tells you. It gives you everything you need. Because remember, this is your Bible. It is God's word. It is. Every word is true. And it is all you need. You've said that a bazillion times. And this is the test to see if you really believe what you say. When you feel overwhelmed, when you feel discouraged, you have taken your eyes off the book. You've stopped meditating. You've stopped listening to God and his spirit reminding you of what you have learned and who he is. And then the way the Lord says, be careful, be careful, Joshua, or put your name there, be careful to do everything written in it. Don't just be hearers of the word. Be actual doers of it, James says. And then, and then in that chapter 1 of Joshua, it also says, Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Or whatever you're going through. What a what a powerful set of words there to keep despair away, to keep us from not being discouraged. The, the Lord himself came to Joshua. The Lord himself came to Paul. The Lord himself meets you and I right where we're at because he is there. He'll be with you and I wherever we go, whatever's happening around us. Hey, the Lord understands us and he continuously loves us and keeps feeding us with what we need even if it means reminding us over and over again how he won't leave us. We can be strong in him. I had a, I had a lady um, ask me to pray that she would stay strong through this certain trial. And I wrote back and said to her, of course I will. And I know how you can be strong through it all. Because Paul understood. And he, that's why he wrote, when he wrote to the people of Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about his strength that sometimes our strength feels like it's gone and then he says but his strength is perfect and because he lives in us he then will issue his strength and his strength will be perfect when ours is gone you know there was a, there was a uh, so many things happened in this past week and 
I, two of, of the ladies from the study, from one of the studies, their sister was told that she has, she's a young gal, younger, I mean, not, not old by any means, and she was told that she has ALS. I mean, that's, that's a bomb hitting. There's nothing they can do. There's no cure for that. It's just a horrible disease. Uh, an, another lady, her husband just passed away. And so many of you listening, you know what that's like. And that's another huge bomb that hits. And you wonder how you can possibly see any light ever again. We have a dear, dear friend who, who um, well, I have two friends. I mean, the, uh, Diane, who got COVID, and she was from one of the studies, and she got COVID, and, and her body couldn't fight it, and she went to the hospital. In 11 weeks, she was in the hospital, but praise the Lord, she is home, but a long road of recovery. And I'm sure during those 11 weeks, I tried to send her as many cards as I could because, of course, you can't go see them. But to try to fight off that discouragement, 11 weeks is a long time. And I kept saying, don't despair. Keep your eyes on Jesus. His plan is perfect. Another one of our dear friends, too, uh, ha had COVID and had to go to the hospital and because of many, many underlying conditions. He has suffered greatly, and now his legs aren't working, and he's, he's free of COVID, but he's now trying to get his legs back working, and, and again, so many weeks of, of therapy, and, and he just can't get it going. And so this is where you, you want to hear the Lord saying in these personal situations, I want to be able to say with all confidence because I know God and I know his word and I know his promises are real. And when he spoke these words to Paul, I could say the same words to you many in grace. Do not be discouraged. To Diane, Diane, do not be discouraged. To Adrian, do not be discouraged. In fact, don't even be terrified through it all. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go and whatever you're going through. Isn't that something to think that we can go through some of the hardest times of our life and be encouraged by the words that he literally, that's why God's word has got to be meditated on. That's how you hear him talk in your ear, saying these words to you. Because he doesn't want us defeated. He wants us free in Christ. Trusting his will. Believing he's totally in control. And then, then the Lord said to Paul, along with those words, he said, and you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Maybe Paul thought that this was going to be it. And 
But what, what words to hear when the Lord said, oh no, Paul, you're not done yet. You will be able to testify in Rome. And, you, and I don't know if you knew this, but Paul always wanted to go to Rome. You wanted to be able to, to share the gospel there. And to hear the Lord say, and you're gonna. Oh, I'm sure these few lines, look at just a couple lines there, but I'm sure it really changed Paul's thought process. And sometimes when opportunity, when we, when we, opportunities come and, and people don't receive and they don't listen and they don't want to hear the, what they need so much when they, when they just refuse it. The Lord, remember how Jesus said to his disciples when they refuse you, they're not really refusing you, they're refusing me. And that's even far worse because they are refusing eternal life. And they will experience eternal death. You've done what you could do and you can't make them do what they need to do. It is a, a single individual choice. Well, the next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they killed Paul. Oh, that's real nice, isn't it? Oh, that's real religious. See, this is what I'm talking about. When it's not real, look what can just sprue out of your mouth. Look at, the, look at that black heart of theirs. And yet, they're so squeaky clean, just like Paul said. You're a whitewashed wall. Can't get through to you. You think you've got everybody fooled, but you don't have the one that matters fooled. And just look, they're forming this conspiracy. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we've taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, this, they're saying, now this is what we want you to do. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. And we are ready to kill him before he gets there. So they were going to, this conspiracy, the, this this, these Jews that formed this conspiracy and bound themselves to this oath, they, they went to the Sanhedrin and they said, you know, just, just go to the commander and tell him that we need to see Paul again and, and we need more information. But we're going to kill him. <laughs> when it's not your time, it is not your time. The Lord has got, you know, if he knows the number of hairs on our head, he knows how many days he has us on this earth. And we are not going to leave this earth one second early or one second late. And it is not Paul's time. The Lord just told Paul, you're going to be testifying in Rome and so, of course, the Lord intervened and how he put the right person, the right place, the right time. Don't we talk about that a lot, too? If you could really look back on your life and see how the Lord had someone right there just when you needed them. That's God's graciousness. That's the, that's the Lord leading you down the path of, with him one step at a time. 
He does not want us to veer off course. And his plan is to keep Paul ministering the gospel. And so when the son of Paul's sister, so Paul's nephew, heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and he told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So the centurion took Paul's nephew to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me, asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside, and said, What is it you want to tell me? He said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting to ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him, and they are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you have reported this. Then he called, then the commander called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Now, did you think to take one man to the governor, it took 470 pieces of artillery or equipment, horses, horsemen, soldiers, spearmen, Really, for one man? I mean, I couldn't, I, I, this is just me, but, you know, I was thinking, could it have been that this is just another something for Paul to say, boy, when the Lord does something, when he promises me that I'm going to testify in Rome, he's going to make sure 470 soldiers, horsemen, spearmen to take one man tell you when the Lord promises he comes through there was nothing that was going to touch Paul on this journey so this commander he writes this letter and his name is Claudius Lysias and he writes to his excellency governor Felix greetings this man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there's no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. See, this is when I thought, again, what a terrible testimony. This commander is saying they're all worked up. They're even plotting to kill him because of, about their religion. This guy is not a criminal. They just don't like what he's saying. There's no charge against him that deserves death or imprisonment. 
Do you think that the commander could have said, I'll tell you this, don't even think about asking me to become one of them because I want no part of that. See, do we, when people look at us, because they're, they're watching us, are we uh, kind of giving off an, an aura of, of superiority or, you know, critical spirit or negativity and that people would say, oh, God, that's what you call a Christian. I don't want any part of it. Because, oh, we're so good at claiming that we're Christian, but out of us, the actions, our face countenance, our, there's no joy. And joy is Jesus because of what we've been promised and what our future is like, and there's always hope with him. You know, that should just bring us some sparkle and excitement and joy. But this kind of action, there isn't anybody that would want to get on that Jewish bandwagon not looking at these men. How, how are we presenting ourselves? What could it be that people can look at us and say, whatever they have, I want? Just remember, we talked about that last week about how important a testimony is, that we're willing to be up and honest about what we were, what we are, but then what Jesus can turn us into. But does our life mesh? Are we being changed? Do we have the joy of the Lord? Is the joy of the Lord our strength? Or are we just in all of our legalism and all that, adding and tacking on to the gospel message and you've got to be and you've got to do and if you're not? You know, Jesus is enough and his spirit can change our life. And the fruit of his spirit can just ooze from us. And that is what people love and are attracted to. Do we have the character of Jesus? Do people look at us and say, I want that? Well, it says here, he's writing this letter and he, he I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, verse 30. I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present him to you their case against him. But the commander is kind of saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to bring this whole king of boodle over to you. But I'm just telling you my opinion. This is a religious problem here. This is a heart issue. And he has done nothing that deserves death or imprisonment. But they're not listening to me and they're even plotting and using against me. So I'm just going to put this all over to you, Governor Felix. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipas. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. Probably that the danger, you know, the danger of the trip was over and so then they went back and sent him um, on ahead with the cavalry. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. 
I stopped there and I thought, hallelujah, those guys' plot failed. Thank you, Jesus. So he is in Caesarea. Paul is in Caesarea. The governor read this letter and asked what province he was from, learning that he was from Cilicia. He said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. So, you know, that's good. I mean, he could have he just turned him down flat, but he didn't because this is part of the Lord's plan for Paul. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Now, in closing, I want to tell you, I looked this up, and like I told you before, Luke makes sure we know that Paul's freedom is his freedom to be able to do what he used to do is over. He's going to be two years confined in Caesarea. And then he'll be two years in Rome. And then plus travel time, it's figured that there's about five years he's going to be in Roman custody. And that is such a contrast to what he had been in the years before. But you know, Paul knows, again, what freedom in Christ is all about. And it has nothing to do with whether you are free to roam or whether you're confined, in, imprisoned. Is his ministry over? Oh, no, it's just kind of changed directions. Paul had 20 years of ministry, and yes, probably 15, he was out doing his, his journeys. But it never was easy. And now he's probably five years or so in confinement in Rome, in the Romans' custody. But haven't you been told how he wrote to his churches and where he was when he wrote to his churches and I want to read this to you does this sound like a man who has given up who had didn't take the Lord's words and take them to heart when he heard be of good cheer Paul you are not done yet don't be discouraged Paul you are not done yet I mean I know this is far from the same but I I remember when I was done singing when I, when I had this doctor tell me, I got treatment for you. Um, I can help you talk, but then you will never sing again. You'll never sing again because singing and talking are on two different mechanisms. So um, he looked at me and he said, what do you want to do? Do you want to talk or do you want to sing? And I said, well, of course, I want to talk. And he said, well, I have treatment for you. You'll need it periodically, but he said, I have treatment for you that will keep you talking, but you will never sing again. In 30 seconds, because that's all it took to give me that treatment, in 30 seconds, my singing, my 52-year singing career was over. And you, you'd think, you know, see, at first I thought, well, I don't know how to do anything else. I just know how to sing. And yet God's spirit just kept reiterating to me that you're not done yet. 
Your avenue of ministry is going to be different, but that doesn't mean it's going to be less intense or that it's going to be less important. It's just, I can almost feel the Lord say, thank you. Thank you for all those years of singing, but I've got other plans for you now. And he probably knew, of course he knew that I, because this is the way I'm, I'm just wired, is that I probably, if he didn't take my singing voice away, I'd probably try to teach Bible study all week and sing all weekend. And he, he knew that in my, in my older age now, that's not possible, so he just took it away. But there are many times I think, you know, why didn't you ever cry? I never had a good old cry about that. And because the Lord just kept reiterating to me, you're not done yet. It's just going to be different. I'm going to use you in a different way. And, and, and try, I try to consider that every day when I'm battling my voice trouble and that I think, Lord, you know you're in charge of it all. And I can't be discouraged because you still have plans. You still have a way of using this voice. You want people studying this book. And then I, I read something like this when Paul writes this and, and I'm reminded, see, everything changed for him those last five years. And but this is what he writes when he's in one of the worst prisons. He writes to the people of Philippi in the first chapter, I continue to rejoice. That's what he says. That's what, I continue to rejoice. Yeah, he's not probably happy in his circumstances, but happy in joy. You know the joy of the Lord keeps you going because there isn't any circumstance that can take your joy away because nothing can touch your relationship with Jesus. No one can take that away unless you let them. And then you, then you take your eyes off what you have in Christ Jesus and you put them on your circumstances and then watch the overwhelming come again. It's up to you. It's up to me. It was up to Paul, but look how he chose. I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And he knew that that deliverance could mean that he's going to die, but then he'd be delivered into glory. Or the deliverance would mean that he would be set free. He knew that no matter what the Lord's will was, whatever direction, he would be delivered. And he said, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you, again, your joy in Jesus Christ will overflow on account of what I taught you. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us such an avenue of joy, even in the middle of tough times, if we're willing. 
Father, we know when discouragement comes our way, it's just because we haven't kept our eyes on you. And then to hear what you said to Joshua, I'm there and I always will be. Just look to me. But make sure that you're in my word so you can hear me talk to you and tell you how to get out of this, how to get through this, how to even, even stay in it yet with joy, if that is what is my what is my will. Father, thank you for showing us that your will is perfect. And whatever your will is, you've given us the tools to stay victorious. But it is our choice. I mean, thank you for the lessons of Paul in this chapter of, of Acts 23. In Jesus' name, amen.